More than four decades have passed since the 26 school children and their bus driver were abducted in Chowchilla, California, and their kidnappers caught. But in 1976, children's trauma was still a novel field of study. So it may seem hard to believe that only a month after the children were reunited with their families, more than 4,000 people attended Ed Ray and Children's Day. The children who were taken away and are now home again are from families of modest means, farm workers. It still doesn't make any sense yet. At Chowchillips, they are planning a celebration to honor the school bus driver who saved the children. Celebrations in Chowchilla included a parade and a barbecue. It was a day of festivities that organizers hoped would erase, or at least ease, the horrors of their ordeal. There was even a trip to Disneyland. But for the kids who were on the school bus that day, the misery and uncertainty and fear had long-lasting effects. Time may heal the raw pain, but scars remain. I think about what you survived and what you went through, what, what it must have been like. Is this still heavy on your mind? Is it something that you think about to this day? The release of some of the kidnappers a few years ago was a little difficult on me, but I got through it. I mean, I'm resilient. I've proven that time and time again. I can just about live through anything. The miracle is continuing to walk in life when so many times... I have tried and contemplated suicide. The miracle is coming through it and being willing to receive the light. My life was dealt with self-medicating and um, only one reason I'm standing here walking and talking and taking in air is because of God. Now I'm going on 10 years clean and sober. These three survivors, Larry Park, Jennifer Brown Hyde, and Mike Marshall, struggled with demons for many years following the kidnapping. Demons like alcoholism, drugs, crime, and anxiety. As they grew older, they developed PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm 50 years old and I can have an anxiety attack over getting in the car with my husband and taking a Sunday drive. Jennifer now lives in a part of the country prone to ferocious storms, including tornadoes. She says she needs to steel herself mentally to climb into her family's storm shelter, which she refers to as the wine cellar to comfort herself. Other confined spaces like airplanes and basements also present a mental challenge, a return to that dark place where she was left for dead. I didn't even get back to Chowchilla after the kidnapping without having nightmares. I had nightmares that night, morning, that day, whatever time it was. I had nightmares on up through all my teenage years. If I went to a slumber party and was overly tired and stayed up late, I would have terrible nightmares. Um, the kidnappers would line us all up, put an apple on our head and shoot and miss the apple and shoot me in the head. I would see my own funeral. I would see the procession going to the cemetery, which was just down the road from our house. There is 
absolutely nothing up to that point in my life that caused as much damage to my self-esteem and my self-worth than being kidnapped and buried alive. Larry Park decided to write about his experiences. In his poignant book titled The Chowchilla Kidnapping, Why Me?, Larry shares his uphill battles with mental illness, severe anxiety, and drug addiction. When I started writing my book, I wanted people to know that it doesn't end at the children coming home. That's, that, was, that was the beginning. Shortly after the kidnapping, a six-year-old Larry began hearing a voice he called Mr. In your book, you describe going back home and struggling fairly quickly with voices in your head and visitors taking control and trying to control your behavior. I don't want to dwell on this too much, but tell me what happened to you as a result of this kidnapping. We have to dwell on it. Mr. came to me the night that we came home. Mr. would sit up with me all night long because I wouldn't go to bed. Mr. told me stories. We played games. Mr. became the best friend that I had in the whole world. Did Mr. have a face? He, he, he didn't have, he doesn't have a face. When I describe the darkness, that's what Mr. is. He is an enveloping presence. And we would go outside at night and we would talk. But then, then one day our relationship changed. It wasn't telling me stories anymore but instead telling me things that I should do. Telling me fights that I should get in, saying that I shouldn't let anyone put me down or anything like that. If someone puts me down, just hit them in the face. Larry has wrestled for decades with what happened to him as a child. He turned to counselors for medications to quiet the turmoil in his mind. But nothing could silence the controlling voice of Mr., telling him to hurt people or the sinister nightmares that plagued him day and night until he found salvation. After I started going back to church, the elders of the church called me in for prayer. And Mr. went away. That very night, he was gone, and he never came back until just recently. Was he the devil? Was he a demon? And I know that Mr. is a demon. I know that he's a demon because no medication ever took him away, but the Word of God did. Larry's healing continues even today. He has struggled with addiction for 20 years, finding comfort in his family and his music, and working with his hands. At the release of this podcast, Larry will have been sober for 11 years. Today, he is a pastor, a Christian counselor, and a local handyman. He credits a large part of his active recovery to his Christianity, and, incredibly, 
to his ability to forgive the three men who kidnapped him. You met Richard Schoenfeld? I've met with all three of them. Oh, you've met with all three of them. Tell me how that all got arranged and why you wanted to do that. I cannot tell that part of the story without giving a shout out to a woman named Lyra Monroe. Lyra Monroe works for a nonprofit called Restorative Justice. I decided in my recovery when I hit step nine and it was time to make amends that I needed to go to the kidnappers and apologize to them for spending all of these years hating them. Larry's words absolutely shocked me. I couldn't understand why, after everything he'd been through, he needed to apologize to the men who snatched his childhood, left him for dead, and caused him a lifetime of trauma. I needed to understand why his recovery needed to include this improbable step, hearing his kidnappers forgive him. So I spoke with the woman Larry mentioned, Lyra Monroe, the president of Restorative Justice Resources. When somebody experiences crime or harm, they lose their power and they lose their voice. And restorative justice is really about bringing the power back to the survivors, but also creating a balance uh, in, the, in the dynamic between the people harmed and the people that have done the harm. Lyra began working with victims, offenders, and families as an assistant investigator some 25 years ago. I asked her what could motivate Larry Park, a victim of a horrendous crime, to ask for forgiveness from his captors and even pose with them for what is a truly incredible photo. You know, you see a picture of him with the kidnappers and they're smiling. I mean, how do you get your head around that? How was he able to forgive people who caused him so much harm? For survivors, seeing the humanity in the person that harmed them can actually help them decrease the fear and anxiety because for so many survivors, and I don't dare speak from every survivor's perspective, but the more that Larry could see the humanness in them, the less scary uh, they were. And the more he had a voice about how the conversation went and what kind of questions, for example, he wanted to ask them, he was really in control of that process which is empowering to a survivor, but it also allows them to find their own route to healing so that survivors have the power to ask, why did you do this? Why did, why me? Um, and then also to understand the very painful impact that those, the people that did the harm had on the survivors or the victims. Nobody deserves that kind of hatred, nobody. And so they needed to know from me that I was sorry that I had hated them for so long. And through Lyra's guidance and, and her steadiness, I have had the opportunity to meet with the three of them individually and to apologize to them for hating them for so long. And I have opened myself up to accept their apology for the kidnapping. Did they apologize? Oh, yes. Fred Woods, too? Yes. And it was a heartfelt apology. 
You know what? You can forgive, but you don't have to forget. I got a spot in my heart that forgives, but I got a spot in my heart that is ready to come undone, too. Really. I really looked up to Larry's being able to forgive them. That takes strength. It does. And a connection with God. After having my little girl, well, she's not little anymore, but I had the thought of if something like that ever happened to her, I just could not imagine how do I forgive them. Mike Marshall, who at 14 was the oldest kid on the bus that day, has different feelings about forgiving his kidnappers. I understand the importance of forgiveness. I really do, because if you can't forgive, then that keeps it alive, keeps evil alive. I spoke with defense attorney Scott Handelman at his home in Berkeley. He represented Richard Schoenfeld from 2009 until his release in 2012. He also represented Richard's brother, James, at his parole hearings in 2013 and 2015. They are people, first and foremost. You know, the Schoenfeld's an example of the successful rehabilitation. You know, they both discharged from parole and have had no problems ever since. We reached out for an interview with Richard and James. They both declined our requests. But James did have a message for our listeners. So I understand you have a statement from James. I do. Can you read that statement for us? Sure. To all listeners of this podcast... I am one of the three perpetrators of a heinous crime we committed in 1976 that has come to be called the Chowchilla Kidnapping. I could not more deeply regret my actions, and I know that the two others feel the same way. The horrific impact we caused the children, their families, and their community is incalculable, and it continues to this day. I would give anything in the world if I could go back in time and tell my young self not to make the greatest mistake of my life. I served real time as punishment, some four decades in prison, and appropriately so. My sincerest hope is that knowledge of the lifelong pain and damage my criminal actions caused the children will serve to deter actions by others in the future that could carry such grave consequences. When was that statement written? Oh, it was written in in preparation for this podcast. So recently? Recently. But, you know, I should add, James has made numerous remorseful remarks. For example... I reviewed the 2015 parole hearing transcript uh, yesterday in preparation for our meeting, and, you know, it's chock full of remorseful comments that James made uh, along the same veins. Maybe so, but not every person who was at that parole hearing bought what he said. Right. He didn't have everybody convinced that he was remorseful, did he? Well, he had the hearing panel convinced he was remorseful. You know, they were the decision makers, the neutral decision makers, were, were both unanimously convinced of his remorse. The kidnappers had many supporters, including one of the lead investigators on the case and high-ranking officials within the justice system. Among them, the late appellate justice William Newsom, father of current California Governor Gavin Newsom. He and other advocates argued none of the victims had been physically injured and that after more than 30 years behind bars, the kidnappers had paid their debt and didn't pose a threat to society. If it was a beauty contest, James Schoenfeld would still be in prison. He showed his suitability for parole, number one, by having, in 39 years in prison, an excellent disciplinary record. He was 24 years old at the time of his crime. 
He was 63 when he was found suitable for parole. He engaged in self-help therapy programming throughout his incarceration, which he described as a way of making living amends. He came to the parole board with solid family support and job offers. And it should be noted that the parole board's own psychologists conducted comprehensive risk assessments on him to find he presented a low risk. And these are by the parole board's own psychologists. So actually, the case for his parole was overwhelming, regardless of the monstrous nature of the crime. Those arguments were among the reasons their original sentence of life in prison without parole was eventually overturned. And with that decision, they had a chance of walking free. In 2012, at the age of 57, Richard Schoenfeld was granted parole and released from prison. Three years later, in 2015, his older brother James was also released. We do see these offenders for who they are and what they did to these helpless children. It's, uh, it's easy to paint them as complete monsters, but that may do more harm than good. Not allowing people to learn and grow and change means that they have to stay in that box. And if we only force people to stay in the box that they were put in 20, 40 years ago, then we actually don't expect much of them. And frankly, I expect a lot more of people that have created more harm. I actually expect them to be accountable and become even better people and give even more back. Uh, most people are not going to be serving a life term in prison without possibility of parole. So most people are going to get out. And the question is, when they do get out, what kind of human being do we want in our neighborhood? And that's what we need to think about. Fred Woods, who was the ringleader of the crime, is still behind bars at the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. That's about 180 miles from Chowchilla. He's 70 years old now. We tried to interview him for this podcast, and we wrote to him in prison, no dice. But even though he didn't want to talk to us, we know that inmate number B90399 is reportedly not a model prisoner. In October of 2019, Woods was denied parole for the 17th time, partly because he was running several businesses from behind bars without the warden's permission, including a gold mine, a Christmas tree farm, and real estate dealings. Woods had also tied the knot while incarcerated no less than three times. Fred's next chance for parole is in 2024. What would you say to the victims? Do they need to be afraid of Fred Woods if he's released? They don't need to be afraid of Richard Schoenfeld nor of James Schoenfeld, and I think that uh, the same would apply with respect to Fred Woods. Because he hasn't been a model prisoner behind bars, from what I understand. Well, from what... I understand he's not had any violence in, in prison. He's had some issues with the rules, for example, possession of cell phones. And that has hurt him, and that is likely a reason why he has remained incarcerated. So I hope that with a demonstration of a bit more discipline-free time, he can be found suitable. I mean, I don't think, though, that the aged Fred Woods, probably about 70 years old at this point, would present any threat to anybody. Alameda County Assistant District Attorney Jill Klinge has attended past parole hearings for all three of the Chowchilla kidnappers. This case was first assigned to her back in 2006. Jill shared her thoughts with me about Fred Wood's possible release. So what does that tell you about how he might behave if he were released? Well, one of the adages we go by is 
the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And if you can't obey the rules of the prison and the institution, then we can't expect you to obey the laws of society. I would say that because it's within Mr. Wood's power to obey the rules and to do the programs and to do what many, many other incarcerated individuals do, that he has it within his power. It's not vengeance. It's his inability to do what he needs to do to be released that's keeping him in. I asked Larry Park, who has grappled with PTSD for decades since he was kidnapped, his thoughts about Fred Woods being paroled. Do you think he should be released? I want him out. I think Fred has a lot to offer this world. I really do. I want him out, but I need him to behave. I need him to stop getting in trouble. If he can give me one period between one parole hearing and the next where he stays out of trouble, I will go and advocate his parole. I want him out. Why do you want him out after what he did to you? I was Fred Woods' victim for 36 hours. I was my own victim for 35 years. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. There are certainly many lasting effects from what transpired so long ago for the survivors of this unimaginable crime and even those who are on the outside looking in, like Jill Clingy. It sounds like the effects have followed you, too. You get involved in these cases. I think when you do this as long as we do this and you see repeated trauma, it can, it can affect you. It isn't a case on a piece of paper. It becomes real life. You always have to step back and you follow the law and you support people as best as you can. Larry and I worked together since about 2006 and I watched Larry struggle. I watched his mental decline during a hearing and whatever helped Larry get better and be able to move forward, I'm in full support of. It did cause some dissension, I think, among some of the victims with Larry. And during some hearings, it got very hard for Larry, especially, I believe it was the 2018 hearing with Fred Woods when Larry learned that Fred was still violating rules in prison and Larry started to fall apart again. And that was very hard for me to see. And I was concerned for Larry during that hearing. And I was also saddened because he had such high hopes and they were dashed when he learned that Mr. Woods was still getting rules violations. We've got another one coming up in 2024. How do you get ready for that mentally? You know, I look at what's happened since the last hearing. Have there been any rules violations? Have they done additional programming? At the last hearing, he did not participate. He and his attorney opted to walk out because they didn't agree with a legal ruling the panel was making on how the hearing would be conducted. We would look to see if Mr. Woods' attitude towards the process has changed for the better. And I always do hope that people do rehabilitate and can get out and can lead law-abiding, productive lives outside of prison. I guess some are saying, how much harm could this old man do now if he were released from prison? I guess you have to look at the type of crime they committed. 
This wasn't a crime that involved physicality. It's a crime that involved planning and manipulation and... Cunning. Cunning. And those are things that... They don't age. They don't age. And those are the things you're looking to see if his conduct no longer exhibits those traits. Did you ever answer that question, why me? Oh, I did. I know why me. What I have learned from the kidnapping and from all of this that has transpired since, that there is hope beyond the pain. Why me? Because God knew that he was going to strengthen me to walk through it. I would find the hope beyond the pain and not just find it, but that I would spread that hope, that I would give that hope for other people. Anyone hearing this story, you can stand victorious. You can bring in light. You All you have to do is let it in. And they have served their purpose in my life. In my book, I thank them. I thank them for proving to me that a leopard can change its spots. They were in prison for 30 some odd years and they continued doing self-help groups. How can I not find hope in their story too? Their story of survival. There is always that tickle in my ear that there is hope. I am not stuck in my pain if I don't choose to be. Taking a fresh look at this story decades later, I find true grace in these men and women who overcame such an ugly and frightening tragedy, being buried alive in a pit, left to die in the dark. For people over 50 years old, especially if they're from California, Chowchilla is almost synonymous with the largest kidnapping in U.S. history. When you mention places like Chernobyl or Valdez, Alaska, it conjures up tragedies that happened there even a long time ago. It's the same with Chowchilla. John Fowler explains the impact the kidnapping had on parents. Chowchilla was one of the first instances of a loss of innocence for young American children. This was really the first of the big problems for children in our society. And what happened was there was not only a loss of innocence by the children, but a loss of innocence on the part of the parents as well. John Fowler was a local reporter for KTVU in Oakland. He covered the story of the Chowchilla kidnapping for many years. Parents now are, are far more cautious with their children. They have now become kids who are monitored every minute. We used to play outside when we were young uh, and gone for hours without a thought or a care by our parents. That's disappeared. So I think that's one of the worst things that these kidnappers did to us, changed the way Americans view their children and their children's lives and freedom. Coming up next, a powerful reunion. I'm standing with my hero. I can't believe what he did. I still can't believe it. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike.
Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.